Hello and welcome to the latest Lancet podcast. I'm Francesca Toey and it's Thursday the 1st of December. In this week's podcast we're discussing a new Lancet article about a new method of treatment for phantom limb pain. I'm delighted to be joined by the lead author of the article on the line from Sweden. Welcome. Please can you introduce yourself? My name is Max Ortiz Catalan. I'm an assistant professor at Chalmers University of Technology in Gothenburg, Sweden and work very close with Salvenska University Hospital in, in the same city. Can you briefly explain how phantom limb pain affects patients, some of the current treatments available and how your method differs from these? Often patients suffering from phantom limb pain have a constant level of pain and then throughout the day or or some days out of the week they'll have episodes with a high intensity of pain. And it can be tolerable for some patients, but for some others they can prevent them to engage in in work or, or any social activity. So if you go to the literature, uh, you can find over 60 methods proposed to treat phantom limb pain. Probably the most known one is mirror therapy, where you will place a a conventional mirror in front of the extremity that's still left. So in case of unilateral amputation, so for instance, if you lost your left hand, you would place the mirror in front of your right hand. And then the therapist will ask you to do movements with both hands. And this will give you a visual illusion that your left arm is still there and then it's moving. And there have been randomized controlled clinical trials with this therapy. It's been shown to be very successful. However, if you look at the clinical reality, there's in, in a lot of centers, there's people that have tried this therapy and, and have not got any, any good results. And then you can say the same about other therapies. This includes implantable neurostimulators or um, medications. problem with medications is that they just basically manage the pain. Patients tend to become tolerant to the dose and they need to increase and then there's always the latent risk of uh, developing addiction. So it's not the preferred solutions. What we start working with, my research initially, and it's still a big part of my research, is focused on artificial limbs. So we work on controlling an artificial hand in a very intuitive way. So we develop a system where the prosthesis can be connected directly to the bone, nerves, and muscles and restore functionality. And from this research, we start to work on technologies that allow us to decode the intention of motion. So when patients are trying to move their missing arm, we look at patterns of electrical activity on the stump and then use algorithms to decode that intention of movement. And once we know what the patient is trying to do, we tell the prosthetic device what to do. And while we're working on that research, I met a few patients that had phantom limb pain. And for several reasons, we're not candidates to have an implant for the prosthesis. So the idea came to mix this technology in some sort of uh, ultimate mirror therapy by using augmented reality. What I mean with augmented reality in this case is that we use a conventional webcam and monitor, and then the patients see themselves like in a mirror with the difference that we also place a marker where the stump is. And then with that marker, with computer program, we can add a virtual limb, in this case a virtual arm in that location. So now the patient can move freely in the view of the, of the webcam and using these electrodes that we place on the surface of the skin, so it's a non-invasive system, we can look at the patterns of activation when they're trying to do movements on their phantom arm and then tell the virtual arm to do those movements. So they get to control that virtual arm. In mirror therapy, the patient is asked to do movements with a still available limb, but you never know if they engage their phantom in the therapy. 
What do you think the mechanism is that seems to be working to help relieve the pain? Do you think it's a visual stimuli? What we think is important for the success of the rehabilitation is that they engage in motor execution. And the ultimate result of motor execution is a muscular contraction. That is not only a one-to-one control, so it's not a simple elbow flexion extension or hand open and close for transradial patient, but in more complicated movements that will involve several degrees of freedom at the time. Our working hypothesis at this point is that by getting the patient to re-engage brain areas related to motor execution, we restore changes in the brain that are known to be or hypothesized to be related to phantom limb pain. So we bring the brain to a state uh, as it was previously amputation, so the non-painful state. And this is what will um, help the patients to get rid of phantom limb pain. I think if you look at what we know on phantom limb pain at this point, there's this discussion on if it's a problem related to the periphery or if it's a central problem, there are strong indications that when it has become chronic, it's very much related to central changes and that is being related to cortical reorganization, although lately in the past years there's been a competing theory that says that it may be a reduction in intrahemispheric communication that's causing the problem rather than, than cortical reorganization. The way we see it in either case, there are changes in the brain. We know that happens. And those changes seem to correlate with the, the perception of pain. In this approach, by getting the patient to engage in motor execution and using all those areas, not only cortical but subcortical, then we we can get these patients to start using the brain again to do that and, and reduce the pain. That's one of the main ideas why we think this works. But then there is also a possibility that competitive plasticity is playing a role. And this is because we know that people that develop a skill, a pianist for instance, their hand map in the cortex will be bigger than than a regular person because they have trained in user than hand uh, considerably. And in these cases, and in any other person that has developed a skill and has enlarged um, maps, they don't develop phantom limb pain. So it's not necessarily a cortical reorganization what will cause the phantom limb pain, but what we know on the case of an amputation is that changes happen very fast. And what we believe is that the difference in time is one might cause this entangling with the pain networks, and that's why phantom limb pain happens in amputation. And when the patients are using our system, if we talk about a transhumeral amputation above the elbow, you have a biceps, triceps mostly, that their normal job is to do flexion extension of the elbow. And with these two muscles, we're able to decode more distal movements. For example, hand open and close and a flexion extension of the hand whether the biceps and triceps have nothing to do biologically to that movement. But they get involved in stability for the limb. And those traces of uh, synergistic activation, we can use them in our system to detect when the patients are trying to do those movements. And while the patients start learning to do a lot of different movements, we think that they gain a better control of those muscles and potentially enlarge the, the brain map for those muscles. So We believe that it's two things combined that are probably helping patients to reduce their phantom limb pain. There has been a lot of attention to the visual feedback. The more I've been working in this area, I'm more inclined to think is the actual motor execution that makes the difference. Because first of all, it makes more sense for what we know on previous research. It's not clear how just the visual feedback will help patients to get rid of the pain. In our approach, there are three modalities for the treatment and and every patient does it in the session. And the easiest is probably to look at the video that is accompanying this article. 
where in the first part they have augmented reality. That is, the, they see themselves with the virtual arm and they have control of that virtual arm. So they spend some time there with some movement and then they move into playing a game where they control a car and they drive it by doing phantom movements. And with that, I mean they can turn the steering wheel by rotating their wrist or flexing and extending their hand or opening and closing it. And then the acceleration and, and brake is done with other two movements, depending on which movement they're training at the time. And then on the third part, they see a virtual arm in a target posture, so in different postures, and they are in the control of another arm that needs to match that posture. So what all these three things have in common is that they produce in motor execution to make them happen. And there's the challenge of producing different movements and, and have relative good accuracy or control on, on how they position them. So we think visual feedback is important so they know what they're doing and they can correct the contraction. But probably the most important part here is motor execution. So what are some of the experiences reported by patients when they're using your virtual reality technology and what are some of the key findings from your paper? They find it very interesting. Uh, of course, a lot of them, they have spent decades without uh, a limb. So seeing themselves with the limb, it, it's very interesting and they find it very amusing and particularly having control over it. That's probably the part that they like the most. Something important in this trial is that all these patients, they, they're chronic sufferers. They have tried different treatments, uh, medical, non-medical, some of them up to four or five uh, different treatments, and they haven't had any improvement. So they were in a condition where they always have their phantom frozen, so stuck in a given position. They were unable to move it. Very often, these positions will be, what you say, anatomically impossible. Hands strongly closed where they'll feel the fingers will go through the skin. And having their arms stuck in that position was very stressing. And part of their, their pain will come from that kind of quality of pain related to cramping and, and the joint position. In the beginning, when we ask the patients, okay, so this is what we're going to do. We need you to move the arm. They will invariably say, I can't do that. And we'll say, okay, try it anyway. Just you know, try to do the movement. After some time, in a few sessions, they, they get better at better at moving their phantom until they regain uh, control over it. And then what we hear from, you know, after the six months follow-up, when we check in out again on what, how is the, the pain state, they say, well, now if I get a, a pain episode that is very intense, I'll, I'll start moving my hand, and that seems to help me to be able to just move the hand in a way, and some, some would say, you know, kind of shake off the pain. That's been a skill that they gain during the treatment that is helping them to control the pain. A very important finding for us, of course, it was also to see what is the effect of pain in this patient's life. So we measured the intrusion of pain in activities of the daily living in sleep because we learned from the first case study we did on, on this therapy that um, the patient had a lot of troubles to sleep because he would wake up several times during the night because of one of these pain episodes. And those disappear relatively quickly after, after a few sessions were a notably improvement on the occurrence of these pain episodes during the night so they could sleep better. They start having them that often the, the frequency of pain episodes also decrease, which meant that the, the intrusion of pain in, in the activities of the daily living was reduced. And we think that, of course, when, when you reduce that intrusion in sleep and you sleep better, then you have a better day and that also has positive consequences. We also found that half of the patients, so two out of four patients who were in medicaments, so they were continuously medicated for controlling their pain, uh, they managed to reduce their pain intake by approximately half, so one of them around 80% and one around, around 30 
After your six months follow-up, the pain seemed to increase again slightly with patients. Do you think that this type of therapy would need to be continuously maintained in order to reduce their pain in the long term? The treatment was 12 sessions, and then we follow up after one, three, and six months. We were very interested on the, on the clinical relevance of this treatment, and, and we thought it was important to do a long-term follow-up because if the improvement in pain will disappear rather quickly, then it wouldn't have much effect on, on this patient's life. What we saw is that the pain started to go up. It didn't go as high as in the beginning. It was still, the, the improvements were still there at six months. We think that they might come back after, after a longer period of time, and that's why we developed a system that is portable, that could be used at home. We actually have few patients that are using it at home. In the first case study, we did 18 sessions and, and we saw considerable improvement because of the um, limitations on resources and so on. In this trial, we did 12 sessions. And what we observed is that the, there was an improvement and the improvement was continuous. We didn't see a plateau on improvement. I think if we will have done more than 12 sessions, they will have an even larger decrease in pain because we didn't see their improvement to stabilize or just to plateau. And some, some patients went pain-free and they had that in fewer sessions, but some patients might need more. In average, these patients had phantom limb pain for 10 years. So, so 10 years is considerable amount of time. And if you think the 12 sessions is not that much, you know, to help them reduce their pain, if we're talking about, you know, brain plasticity and what we can achieve. And I think something very interesting that we learn uh, with this therapy is that a lot of these patients have been rather senior, particularly the first patient that tried this system was 72 at the time and lived 48 years with phantom limb pain. And after a dozen of sessions, the pain was considerably reduced. So, so there's still brain plasticity even at older age, uh, which we think is very important and encouraging. What would be the next priority for the field after your study? There are different technologies. We can think that the treatment could be improved with a mix of different technologies, but I believe that if you're trying to move to evidence-based medicine, then the next step for us is to conduct a, a large randomized control trial that we are preparing at the moment, and we'll start with that early next year. And this is to demonstrate a more scientific way that there is an improvement using this particular treatment. For the dissemination of the technology, we think that the, this therapy, since it's not invasive and it won't be very expensive to provide, that will help uh, other patients. We believe that this technology can also be applied to help patients to recover motor control, to increase the drive for muscles after stroke or, or nerve injuries. The reason why we're doing this research is that we hope that this can help uh, patients that are in need. So and we're very open for collaboration. If researchers or clinicians are interested in trying this method, they're very welcome to contact me. Many thanks for joining us today to discuss your article. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And many thanks for talking to The Lancet. Thank you for having me.